This is A Shot of Hope. I'm Vic King, chaplain at Helping Up Mission, and this episode is different. Normally, we're hearing from a graduate of Helping Up Mission about their story of recovery and redemption. But as anyone who's familiar with the world of addiction and recovery knows, that is not how every story ends. On my wall in my office, I've got photos after photos after photos of our graduates, but I've also got a smaller section of photos of men I've had the privilege of walking alongside who have passed away, some from overdose, some of other causes. Today, I'm bringing you a conversation that I had with Allison Hartman and Jake Fishman. Allison is the mother of Adam Fishman, who graduated from Helping Up years ago and passed away more recently. Jake is Adam's brother. They share Adam's story, but also the story of their grief journeys, how Allison's grief led her into writing poetry. You hear one of those poems at the very end of this episode. And also led her to a joint presentation with one of Adam's doctors at medical humanities conferences. You'll hear how Jake's journey of grief led him to ultra-long-distance running in his brother's honor, which is something he's done for the past three years and raised tens of thousands of dollars for helping up. Mother's Day, like any holiday, is joyous for some and bitter or bittersweet for others. This episode goes out to all the mothers and all the family members who don't know where their loved one is today or who've lost their loved one to addiction. We hope Allison's and Jake's stories and experiences bring you some measure of hope and encouragement in your grief. I'm Allison Hartman, and um, I'm the uh, mother of Adam Fishman. And Adam was a graduate of Helping Up Mission in 2013. And he died in 2017. And we're here to tell a bit about Adam's story and, and our story with him. Yeah. And she said, I'm Jake Fishman. I'm Adam's older brother. He was three, three years younger than me. So I'm here to yeah, just relay his story. Adam had a relatively normal childhood, I'd say, up until a certain point. I always say that Adam was a challenge from day one. And he was a very willful child, but a very strong personality. But he was also incredibly lovable and passionate and funny and, and uh, pushed the limits. But he had a normal childhood, and he liked to do all the things little boys like to do. He was very loved, and I guess I'd say everything was normal until, and that's when his there was a divorce. His father and I divorced, and that was very traumatic for both boys, but I would say especially for Adam. He was a very sensitive kid, very tender, very vulnerable. And I'd say he always had this feeling that he wasn't always comfortable in his own skin. Those years after the divorce were hard on him, but like for any kid, it would be hard. I remarried and a few years later, and Adam started experimenting with marijuana in eighth grade. And uh, it was, uh, it, it, I, I'd say it, it became a love affair for him. It was getting high was his focus. And we did all the types of interventions that parents do at that age. Some of it was normal experimentation, but for Adam, I think it was different than that. And it became an obsession. And from marijuana into high school, went to hallucinogens, 
and then and then an arrest happened. He got arrested at age 17 for possession of marijuana. And at that point, a lot of things were happening. In 17, he was he was in a group of kids that were all kind of counterculture kids and all experimenting with all this music and pod and so forth. But one thing I found right around the time of the arrest was a bottle of Oxycontin. And then I knew that we were in a serious, it was serious. And so as a family, we made an intervention and some parents end up doing, the arrest made no difference to him. It was like almost a badge of honor. And so he ended up, we ended up sending him to a wilderness program. And he was away for about eight weeks. And I'd say basically we had a lot of hope at that point. But from then on, it was a spiral downhill. And from Oxycontin came heroin. And so from age about 18, 19, till his death in 25, he was a heroin addict. Many stories are like this. Rehab after rehab, intervention after intervention. And it came a point, I'd say, when when Adam was like, maybe 1920, that I started attending Naranon. And I knew that I, I needed help in how to handle myself with this, what felt like, I always use this analogy of a runaway train, that when Adam started using drugs, I felt like I hopped on this runaway train with him and tried to find the brakes and see what I could do to fix this and this horrible thing. And then I realized eventually that I had to get off this train. There was no way I could stop it. And so I got off the train, and, but then I kept watching the train go by, and that was almost as painful as being on the train. And then I finally realized I had to walk away. And I think Naranon and working my own 12-step program helped me be able to walk away, not walk away with, get out of my life, but walk away with, I love you, and I want you to get well, but I can't participate in this anymore until you're in recovery. And so Adam had some years between 20 and his death that he was homeless. And the first time he was really homeless, that's when he entered the mission. And he did that. Other rehabs, we had to force it. But this was his own choice. He entered on his own, and uh, we felt that he was really ready. Readiness is a big thing. So we thought maybe he had hit his bottom, and he was really ready. Being on the street was no fun, and uh, we weren't enabling him the way we had in the past. And so he entered the mission, and he actually st- he stayed for a whole year. And to me, it was just the biggest sign of hope. And what happened when at graduation they show the picture of the person when they entered the program and then when they leave and the transformation was amazing and i felt like adam came home it was like the adam we all knew and loved and sadly it didn't stick and adam really when he left the program he really didn't continue to work on his recovery and he eventually had a period of doing better, but then ended up spiraling really down the last two years of his life. And we made another, had to make another separation from him of those last last year and a half. And we just said, you know, we can't all go down with a sinking ship. And we love you. We want you to be part of our family. But until you're in active recovery, 
we can't be around. And so he was on the street for a while and for that year. And finally, he ended up at University of Maryland in the ER with a drug-induced psychosis. And he was put on the psych unit and he was there the last two weeks of his life. And he was taken care of during those two weeks by a very compassionate doctor who facilitated a reconnection with me and Adam, his father and Adam, and Jake and Adam. And he was good. They had stabilized him. He had been sober for two weeks, and he was like Adam. And uh, my final conversation with him was, I didn't know it was my final conversation, but his discharge plan from the hospital was to go back to helping up mission. And he had actually called the mission, arranged the admission and all that. And he left on a Friday, March 10th. I spoke with him Thursday, March 9th. We had a beautiful conversation on the phone. He said he was ready for recovery. He said he knew he was loved by all of us and he wanted to help people like you, he said, I want to help people like you do, Mom. And, and so he said, I'll call you when I'm, I get to the mission. And so we waited all Friday, no call. Saturday, no call. Saturday afternoon, about 4 o'clock on March 11th, I got a call from the police. And they said my son was dead. And... Um, um, it's a funny thing. It's, I wasn't really surprised because I had prepared myself for this for, for many years. But it was, of course, a, a devastating shock. I don't think any parent is ever ready for this. And so he never made it to the mission. He in, instead was picked up by his also heroin-addicted girlfriend and was, went to his drug dealer's house and got high and died. It was a fentanyl overdose. And what was interesting and very shocking to find out, several days after he died, previous girlfriend, not the current one, but the previous girlfriend who was actually had a more positive influence, not a drug addict, on his life told us that he had been, I always wondered what had happened to Adam. What? How did he become a heroin addict? He, there was no history of addiction in the family, and on either side of the family, no substance abuse disorders, but she revealed that he had been sexually abused when he was like 11 and 12 and so forth. And I think that played a big role in his downward spiral. And I think it was the missing piece of the puzzle. And I found out afterwards that he he had started to deal with this in his own counseling. And certainly at the mission, was trauma is discussed and, and dealt with. But I do think this, I later in my own reading, had found out that, that such a high percentage of addicts have a history of, of physical and sexual trauma. So... so. My timeline with Adam's story is always hard to keep track because there's like a ping pong ball. It's just so many back and forth periods of drug use, sobriety, rehabs, homelessness. Well, when I think about my childhood and you know my relationship to Adam when I was when we were younger, to be honest, I have very few explicit memories. Explicit memories of it. My, my mom and dad both tell me that we were very close growing up. I remember playing with him, and I remember being at the be like going to the family vacations with him. I sort of remember when it started. He was 12, 13. I would have been around 17. I remember catching him smoking weed and 
the basement stairwell outside here with his friends. And I remember actually being at a group of my friend's house, uh, at a friend's house with some of my friends who one of them had a younger brother who's Adam's age and Adam was over with his group of friends there. And I remember all like my friends smoking weed with my brother. And that was my first really, that was the first time I, I saw him using drugs and I progressed from there. I remember when I was in college hearing about him, my mom finding the Oxycontin and it was pretty clear that he was no longer the person that he once was or, and he like it became, it, he was no longer my brother really at that point. I just didn't, I didn't know who he was anymore. We lost common interests in our conversation. We had nothing to talk about really anymore. There, one, another impact was just as all, it was, he became like, all encompassing with my family. Like he was all that my mom and dad really could focus on, myself included to an extent. It, it, I think it's hard enough being a sibling to a, a brother or a sibling to an addict, but I think it's at a whole other level being the parent. It didn't really seem to matter what was going on in my life, positive or negative there because and understandably so that there was a crisis that needed to be dealt with. I was never in crisis, Adam was. His, dissent took the priority and I can't really fault my parents for that. That's just how, that's just how it is when you have a kid, I can imagine. But he had a lot of, he had a lot of ups and downs as my mom mentioned. And during the periods when he was sober and especially after he got out of the mission, we really did reconnect and we're in touch fairly regularly. I think we had a really good, I think we had a really good relationship at that point. I saw him when I was in town and we'd have dinners with the three of us or with my dad and it was really good. I remember when it started taking a downward spiral was, and again, my timeline might be off, but sometime around the murder, after the murder of Freddie Gray and the, the unrest in Baltimore and the protests, I know, I recall he got beat up or so he says he got, I never want to doubt his, his word, but with an act, you never know. He says he got beat up and mugged. And that's when I remember just things changed. He became homeless shortly thereafter. At one point, he attempted suicide and jumped off a building and was in shock trauma after that. That was really hard at that point. When I found out about that, I was with my in-laws and my wife for the holidays. And that obviously dominated that holiday. And, but then he checked himself into University of Maryland. I was in Boston in, in law school at that point. And we, like, like my mom mentioned, yeah, he had a great doctor, great nurses and staff there in general, but reconnected my last conversation with him. We talked a couple times on the phone during the two weeks that he was there. We also actually still have a couple of voicemails um, saved on my phone during that time. Though I think the last time I talked to him was probably Wednesday or Thursday before he died. And just over Facebook Messenger, I was on campus and just checking, just, I don't remember exactly what we talked about, but it was very, basic and just checking in. He was looking forward to getting out. He, I knew he was planning on going back to the mission. The worst times of your life, you don't realize it's gonna, it's gonna lead up to that, or it's gonna happen until it happens. It was just a normal Saturday and I had just gotten back to my apartment in Boston and got a call from my mom and yeah, just found out he, he was dead. And I was on a plane like four hours after that back home. Yeah. Yeah, I always describe it as a shock, but not a surprise. I think my mom and I and my dad we were all preparing for his death for probably five plus years before 
it happened. Like it was not, of, of course, not hoping for it, but just knowing that it was very likely enough. And honestly, actually, I take that back. In a, in a way, almost at points, I did hope for it because he was so tortured and putting us through so much torture that that, I, that sounds cold. And but it's just if he was going to be in such a miserable, awful, painful place and dragging everybody else down with him then like the only piece like the only piece you can find i imagine is death i think my mom and my wife both found my, my lack of normal grieving surprising but i think that she, like my brother died many years before he actually died so i think i was i think i was already had already accepted that not that, that made his death easy his, but after Adam died, it was a Saturday, and the funeral was not f until the following Sunday, so eight days later. And I had a conversation when Adam was in the hospital. I had connected to Adam's doctor, and I could tell he was, had really connected to Adam and had bonded with Adam. And so he called me to get a full history on Adam. I could tell this doctor was not like any other doctor I had been in touch with throughout all the years of Adam's addiction. He really, he stayed on the phone with me for almost an hour. Any other doctor, when Adam was in hospital, like when he was in shock trauma or other rehabs and people, they just didn't really want to hear about who Adam was as a person. And so this doctor, Dr. Rosenberg, he really um, cared about Adam, and he's the one who facilitated our conversations with Adam in the hospital. And so when Adam died, one of the first things I did is I called Dr. Rosenberg, and I told him Adam had died. And he, one of the last things that he had told me on the phone, Dr. Rosenberg, is he said, Adam has a good discharge plan, he's going back to the mission, but I just want to tell you that Adam is at great risk of death. And not that was a news flash for me, but to hear it from a doctor. So he prepared me in a way. And so I met, at, he actually, I invited him to the funeral. And he came to the funeral, and then he came to Shiva, and that we're Jewish, and Shiva is what is a period of mourning. Yeah, a period of mourning where people gather. And there's a short service and so forth, and, and people speak and, uh, and share their experiences of Adam. And he spoke and he shared just a beautiful, he wrote something, several pages, and he read it about Adam. And I just felt like this man knew my son. And when he left that night, he said, I'm here for you if you need me. And... I took him up on it, and I, he, I call him my grief mentor, and he mentored me through my grief. Now, not in a professional way, but just we got together maybe once or twice a month, and we sat and we talked and we talked and cried and cried, and I, we developed a very unique relationship that was very healing and meaningful, and from that, about a, a year and a half in that journey, we wrote something together. And it's, it's called Journeys End, Journeys Begin. And it's actually a performance piece. It's a role play uh, between doctor and mother. 
doctor and patient. I, I actually play Adam in some of it. And um, we've actually presented it at several medical humanities conferences about grief and addiction and how to cope with death, especially the death of a child. And the, that pro creative process of relationship and sharing it with others has created um, kind of a deeper meaning out of Adam's death. I think the fact that giving to others, helping others, is a way of, of making something very tragic, very meaningful. And so that's been a project of ours. It was stopped, we had to suspend it during COVID, but we're back doing it again. And so that's been a very, a real gift from Adam's death. And believe it or not, there have been gifts. Not that, as Jake said, not that I would ever want or hope for his death, but there's been a number of redeeming things from it. I'm a runner, um, a long distance runner. And I guess 20, 2020 would have been the first year that, that I started doing this. I'd always, leading up to this, I'd, always, I'd run on a couple marathons and I'd always wanted to get into the um, ultra running scene, which is just completing a distance, anything longer than a marathon. Typically the first, the first notch in that realm is 50 kilometers or 31 miles and, and change. And so leading up to the anniversary of Adam's death in 2020 would have been his three year anniversary. He died on March 11th. And so leading up to that, I thought, um, about, I was thinking a lot about Adam, of course, because I, I usually think about him every day, at least a little bit, but especially around that time more. And I thought about combining some of my goals with something that could be done to honor Adam and remember him. So that's when I thought about running his age in, in miles, which at that time he would have been 29. And then of course I thought I want to at least get 31 miles. Maybe I'll just make it a little more of a challenge. And so I paired doing that around his birthday, which is he died two weeks to the day prior to his birthday, March 25th. I paired that with a fundraiser for helping a mission and running for me running 33 miles for what would have been Adam's 29th birthday. And I raised $10,000, a little more, but I think it was a little more than ten thousand dollars for the mission, which was blew me away. It was complete. No, my goal was twenty. Yeah, it was twenty nine hundred because rounding up with his age. And after I put out the fundraiser, the first initially, I think I hit that goal in less than twenty four hours. So I doubled it. I hit that goal in probably another forty eight hours. So then. It just kept going, which was, yeah, it, it was pretty awesome. So I successfully completed that run last year. I did it again on his birthday. Last year, a friend of mine started a fundraiser for him. I raised, I think, just under $4,000. It was much more last minute. This year, I plan to do it again. I plan to do 40 miles this year. No particular reason aside from I like to suffer. But, but again, it'll be in his honor. Probably do some sort of fundraiser for it. And yeah. From what I've witnessed, from what I've, I have several friends who are in long-term recovery, and obviously I have the experience of being Adam's brother. It's very, running that kind of distance is very mental. It's probably like 95% mental and 5% physical. And I preface all of this by saying I'm, I'm not the most experienced ultra marathoner by far, but I, I, I do know that you get to a certain point, probably a lot earlier than you think, that your, your body, everything, every muscle in your body is telling you like, you know, just stop and walk. Like it's easier to stop. 
um, and it'll feel better to stop. If you want to, if you want to achieve the goal that you've set for yourself, you you have to will your mind to overcome what your body's telling you to do. And I can only imagine that from the point of, from the mindset of an addict, it'd be easier and feel better to start using again. I'm sure that it's probably something to do with that overlap. Yeah. In terms of talking to other parents or loved ones of addicts, I, I have gone back periodically to my Naranon group because they asked me to speak, to share my, my story. And what I find very helpful and useful for me and for them is that when I was listening, uh, when Adam was alive and I went to Naranon and a parent would come in and talk about that their addict had died, it was like, I don't know if I want to hear that. I don't, I don't know if this is, but afterwards, it, after yeah, I gave it a chance and I listened, I realized, wow, this is really helpful. That this person can speak as a parent and has survived this and actually doing okay. And so now was my opportunity to give in that way. And so I, I do go back periodically and I even start my talk by saying, I'm here to tell you that you can have a full life even after your addict has died. And I think that's really helpful for people to hear. And then telling the story, and then it's a story of resilience, really, as a parent. And it's also a story, the resilience comes for me, has come from making meaning out of this. That isn't just, Adam hasn't just become a statistic, or, but that he's, he, he was a full person with his own full life. And actually, the last thing he said to me, which is, Mom, I know what I want to do with my life, which he was always confused about what he wanted to do, of course, because he was always using, but he, he said, I want to help people like you do. And, and I really feel like Adam is fulfilling his purpose in a way through me. He's not here to do it, but I think through my love of him and connecting to him, that he can actually continue to do what he was meant to do on this earth. And so when I go to Naranon and speak, that's one way, these presentations, but also now the current project is, the mission has wanted an acupuncture program there. And as an acupuncturist, actually they're giving acupuncture, free acupuncture to the men in recovery. And so that has just launched this past fall and, and that actually, it was um, someone at the mission who, hearing the story about Adam, said, I think we should name this project the Adam Project. So it's, and what's interesting is it takes place in the library at the mission, which is where Adam had his work, his service work at the mission was in the library. Yeah. Well, I realized that my life was getting as, almost as bad as Adam's. I was losing sleep, I was losing weight, I was, and I had a lot of the same symptoms Adam had as an addict, and I realized I was going down. And you wanna, I guess I would say something like, to hold a balance between hope and hope and self-care. You gotta take care of yourself, you don't wanna be hopeless. I, I never lost hope. I felt hopeless at times, but I always maintained this 
hope that Adam could get well, but never forget to take care of yourself amidst this and that you can love someone so deeply and at the same time take care of yourself at the same time. You're no use to anybody if you're not in working order. On the anniversary of Adam's death, March 11th, I always want to do something useful <laughs> because it's a sad, very sad day. And so I go to the mission and I speak to the men there. And I want to bring hope there. I don't want to just be, oh, my son died and addiction's horrible disease. And I, I don't want to, that's not my purpose, but to talk about the detachment that was necessary that I had to go through, but it was a detachment with love. Whenever I had to separate from Adam, I said, Adam, I love you. I love you so much. But until you're in your own recovery, I can't help you. It wasn't a rejecting kind of detachment. It was actually a very inclusive detachment. It's like, I just can't be here now while you're destroying yourself. But I love you, and I know you can... I know you've done it before, you can do it again. And so I think that's my message. Yeah. The hard part is that the, as a parent. You're, as a parent, you're supposed to always, especially a mother, you're supposed to help your child. And so to distance from them is very counterintuitive. Case in point was when Adam left the hospital on March 11th, or March 10th, actually, and his father and I, we're like deciding, should we pick Adam up and actually take him to the mission? It's just cross town, but we were told he was being given bus fare or whatever to get there. And we went back and forth and we thought, you know what? We've done that so many times. We took him from rehab to this or that program. And we thought he's, he's 25. He's made this decision to go back. Even if we actually hand-delivered him, as soon as we turned around, he could, have le he could leave. So we realized it's still something I think about is, should we have taken him? Would he still be alive? But th at this point, it was in Adam's hands, and I don't think we could have ever prevented what happened. So I wasn't there when this poem was found. Of my mom and dad cleared out Adam's apartment at the, his last stint of homelessness before his death. He was in the wind, and so they went to clear out his apartment, and they found, I think it was a journal, and a bunch of his writings and thoughts, and etc. And they found one of them was this poem that they kept. So it goes... It's my perfect kind of day in so many ways. The sun is hot, but the breeze is cool. As I sit in the shade of this magnificent old magnolia tree, I feel at peace, natural peace. Artificial powder happiness can never be this pure. There's a reason I'm here at this moment, with the gorgeous bay in front flowing so eloquently, seeming almost synchronized with nature's sounds. The world is such a beautiful, refreshing thing, renewing my soul showing me the old me. I've lost, with, I've lost touch with so much I loved and cared deeply about. It's been too long, mother. I remember just a few days ago trying to feel these feelings I used to have and being completely unable to. I know if I keep going without falling down again, the possibilities are endless. So much yet to be experienced, so much to see. So I actually have the last line of that tattooed on a memorial in a whole memorial piece on my ribs. So I carry that around with me every day. So 
For a couple of years after Adam died, I, I just all spontaneously started writing poetry and about, about Adam, about his death and grief. And so I wrote this poem called The Club. We meet in a special hall, this club that no one wants to join. We have all heard, this is not the proper order of things. This is not supposed to happen. Scanning the room, I see faces whose eyes share my same sober gaze. Huddled in a corner, a group whose common loss occurred at birth, their hopes hardly given time to be imagined. They bury all things unrealized. Others meet in a circle, sharing their stories of sudden accidents, colliding cars, bodies strewn across the road, sirens and stretchers and blood, Licenses recently obtained go up in flames. So much ahead suddenly falls off the cliff. Dreams half formed, abruptly cut short. Then those joined with me who watched disease, followed what finally they could not control. Sometimes over months or years, they watched in slow motion the torturous simmer of demise. Some stayed involved, Others walked away. All hearts were broken. I back up, step way back. The walls dissolve, and I find myself in a field, expansive and boundless. Everyone is dancing in their tears. Sobbing sounds like songs. Memories turn into poems. Hands pleading for answers draw pictures in the sky. Photos in black and white awaken color and layers of histories weave into music as myriad stories merge into a single note chanted without end. And by some mystery, a whispering enters my ear. Grief is the gift bestowed by the gods. Cloaked in darkness and hidden in shadows, it waits for those who are ready for truth whose fears have been burned in the fire of pain and obstacles faced in the valley of despair, who see for the first time that mind beneath the unimaginable loss is love, pure, unbreakable, endless. <laughs>